All right, I got a couple things to tell you about before we get to our guest speaker this morning, which you'll all be very excited to see. Uh, we are doing a thing on August uh, 5th, 6th, and 7th called CTV. It's called Change Their View. Well, okay. Woo! There you go. Cool picture, right? That's Sean in the... Do I just think it's more cool than you guys or what? It, it is. It's this thing called Splashdown. What CTV is, is a lot of parents get really busy, and they don't know how to play with their kids or spend a lot of time with their kids. What we do at change, CTV, Change Their View, is we want to change your kid's view of you and Jesus and everything. So we get you together with your kids. We teach you how to play with your kids. We do a lot of stuff with you guys, and we're going to call this year Splashdown. We do a whole bunch of stuff with water. So if you have kids... You should bring them, sign up. There'll be a sign-up sheet in the back. We're going to start our CTV thing. It's going to be so much fun. You're not going to know what to do with yourself. After it's over, you're going to be like, hey, kids, let's play some more. Woo. Okay. They also, they also need volunteers. And if you don't have kids, you can volunteer to help. So they, they have lots of things that you can all do. You should all be involved. It'll be a whole lot of fun. So sign up. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Film and Theology on Friday night. Everybody's asking me what movie we're going to do. We're going to do Sherlock Holmes this Friday, so come, it'll be a whole lot of fun, and we'll talk about all the ramifications that are in it. I tell you, I, I watch movies, and, and when I watch movies, a lot of times I watch it with a different eye than a lot of people watch things with, because I'm always thinking, the directors are, are trying to put forth some type of vision, the writers, the everything that's in there says something, and so when we watch Sherlock Holmes, I'm going to talk about what they're actually trying to say and what message you're getting across, because seriously, they've got a huge pulpit across America, and I love movies, uh, but directors and, and writers, they get to actually preach for two hours to you when you give them your money to go watch a movie, and so we're going to talk about kind of the stuff they look at, uh, and then lastly, I need to introduce to you a guy named Jared, where'd Jared go, there he is. This is Jared is, is, the, is one of the coolest guys I know. Apparently, he mountain bikes really well. He took Caleb out, yeah, mountain biking last week, and, and Caleb wrecked, and he and uh, Ryan were just like, what's wrong with you? Come on, man, hurry up. And, but anyway, so he's got a, a great story, uh, things that have gone on in his life, and his Father's Day is all, because I'm not a dad. But we have for Jared. All right, so I don't know if anyone's ever um, talked about how nervous it is coming up in front of people, but I just want to get it out in the open. I, I freaked out. I've done it before, but I, I know some of you, which is which is good. It makes me comfortable, and there's quite a few of you I don't know. So I'm I'm a little nervous. It's all right. Just just bear with me as I go through. Um, I, I was really honored about six months ago, Aaron asked me to come up here and give the Father's Day message. And uh, I was completely, um, I, I was stoked. I was just like, wow, you know, it's really nice that Aaron asked me to do it. Well, after about a month, I found out I was his number two choice. <laughs> so I'm, so if it's really not that good, it's his fault. I'm number two. Number one probably would have been better. So um, about a month ago, I had all, all, all my notes kind of together. Uh, I had about seven pages of notes, and I figured, you know, it's kind of a good, I'll let my wife be the guinea pig. I figured I'd just kind of go over it with her. I was like, okay, honey, this is it. And I wasn't even like 20% of the way through, and it made no sense at all. So I'm working a lot. I'm working, you know, get up in the morning, seven. We had these really long weeks. I was at, I was at work probably to like seven, eight o'clock at night. So I'm working 14, 15 hours a day. And then I'm like, like thinking about, oh, I got to get together with Aaron. I got to go over this stuff with him. And I was just completely terrified. So I call up Aaron, right? So it was like a month before today. And I'm like, I, I can't do it. 
I, I'm just too stressed out. There's too much going on. I'm freaked out. He said, no, no, no just, just calm down. Just come over and meet with me tonight. It will be okay. So I showed up with my seven pages of notes that made absolutely no sense. And um, Aaron starts talking to me. And he says, well, well, what's going on? You know, I was like, well, look, man. I was like, look, you know, if, if you need someone to speak on a Sunday, right, and it's like Friday, you need like this last-ditch effort, I'm your guy. You know, I'll put it together in two days. And so he just kind of looked at me. He's like, you know, so, so what you're telling me is you, you want to have an excuse in case, in case it sucks real bad. And I was like, well, yeah, pretty much. So I put this together. It's been six months. Aaron, as graceful as he's been, helped me make it make sense. So it's the same kind of content, but it's like I can actually read it. You know, I was reading it before, so I can actually read it now. So um, if it sucks, it's completely my fault. I did it. So I'll take full responsibility. The, the first thing that I want to talk about is um, talk about my father, talk about myself as, as a young person growing up. Um, my father was diabetic. He was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was an uh, early teenager. So it was just one of those things. It was genetic. His pancreas stopped working. Um, one of my first memories that I have uh, was back in 1985. I remember it's, it's deeply ingrained within my brain. It was 1985. Now, like a Virgin was number one on the charts. Back to the Future was number one. Good memories. You think the, the 80s, I wasn't a big fan of the 80s, but the 80s anyways kind of sums it up. Well, my first memory from 1985 was in Minnesota. I was in the Mayo Clinic, and um, some of the top medical doctors in the world were trying to graft a piece of my grandfather's pancreas onto my dad's, and it wasn't successful. And so the doctors had pretty much told our family that that, that was it. Look, this is, he's not going to make it through the night. He's going to die. And as a, as a six-year-old boy, I was six years old at the time, I, I'll never forget, it was winter. It was a real, real bad winter. It was one of the worst they'd had in about 20 years. And it was just complete whiteout. I remember looking out the window, and you couldn't see anything. And I remember walking by my dad's room. My mom didn't want me to see my father. He didn't want that to be my last memory of my dad. So as I walked by, I just kind of glanced. I, I kind of glanced in there, and I remember seeing my dad hooked up to all these machines. And I, I remember understanding, like, very vividly that that's death. Like, I might not ever see my dad again. And so that was one of my first memories. I cried myself, of course, to sleep that night. And uh, it, that was kind of my life. As a young person growing up, basically my, my dad fortunately made it through the night and defied the odds of what the doctors had said, that he wouldn't make it through the night. My father lived. So while most kids, they experienced movies and baseball and music, most of my growing up was basically I had this little... I had this little bag. My mom tells me about it. It was a little Marion hospital bag, canvas bag, and I had coloring books in it and crayons and stuffed animals. And a lot of, a, a lot of times I was going to the hospital throughout the year because I was the youngest. I had two older brothers. And so I would go to the hospital with, with my mom as my dad was in the hospital, and they'd fix different things, whatever was wrong with my father at the time. So 1989, four years later, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. You guys remember that? Of course, Like a Prayer, Madonna. Can't get rid of her. She's back <laughs> 80s. My, my father goes in for a kidney transplant. Um, he, obviously, with the stress of his, of his pancreas, his, his kidneys were failing. He had one kidney that worked. That, that kidney had failed. So he was on dialysis. Um, we ended up going back to Minnesota. I was 10 years old at the time. I ended up going back to Minnesota. My aunt given, had given my father and donated the kidney. She was a match. So in 1989, my dad had a kidney transplant that was successful. And now by this time, my father had already, you have your diabetic complications. My father was, he was blind almost completely in his right eye. He had neuropathy. 
and um, was on a lot of medicine. And then, of course, obviously, you add on the kidney transplant. My dad was immunosuppressed. So as a kid, you go in there, and my dad always had about a handful of pills that he was taking. And about the age of 10, basically, it was stay away from your dad if you're sick because he was immunosuppressed. He had to take this medicine to, to make sure that he was, you know, just a, a basic cold or flu could put him in the hospital and possibly kill him. So as a young person at, at 10 still, my birthday's in January. It was wintertime, so most of my birthdays, a lot of times my dad was sick, and preventatively my dad would be in the hospital for, for quite a few of my birthdays. Not all of them. I have some, some, good, some good birthday memories. Um, but basically, that was... Those are my growing up years. Those are a lot of my memories that I have. Now, th there was some funny stuff. Granted, you know, my dad was blind in his right eye, and he, when he walked, his, like, his feet clumped a lot. And uh, I'll never forget, it was one, one memory in particular. I was talking about my brother recently, my oldest brother, and um, they had gone to the drug, they had to go to Long's to pick up a prescription or whatever. Well, my dad had those, you know, his, had those aviator glasses, and they were like cool in the 80s, and the 90s they weren't cool. My dad still had them, you know, it was the 90s, he didn't care, right? So he still had the aviator glasses. And uh, he goes, you know, it's one of those like they're normal when you're inside, and then they, they turn colors when you go outside, you know, it's like they're like sunglasses and glasses at the same time. Well, he's blind his right eye. He goes in, he gets out of the car, my brother notices the lens out of the right side is, is missing, right? Well, he's blind, he doesn't know, so. He goes walking in the store. He's walking around the whole store the whole time. My brother doesn't say a word. <laughs> just poor guy. He walks around and gets his prescription, and he comes out, and he goes home. And I don't know if he looks in the mirror, whatever. He, he takes his glasses off and realizes, like, my, my lens is missing. How, how long has it been like this? My brother's laughing, cracking up. My dad was not happy. He was so, he was so mad. This is one of the good memories that I have of, of, of my father. Really nice. At his expense, of course. Um, and, and then his version of cleaning. My dad would go and he would clean. Like, he'd go and make toast. And uh, I mean, it just used to drive my mom nuts. Of course, my mom was always, she's got three boys and then a husband. That's, that's, so she was always cleaning up after us and him. So he would go and he would make some toast, you know, spread the toast. And then he'd go back and sit in front of the TV. Well, my mom would come in and be like, what's... What's going on, Jay? Why do you leave such a mess? He's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I didn't leave a mess. She's like, yes, you did. Come over here and look at this. He's like, well, I don't know. And so I walk over, and I'll never forget. I look at it, and there's just all these crumbs everywhere, and there's two swipes. You look at this. Well, he, for what he's, he cleaned everything that he, he saw, you know, so he cleaned, <laughs> technically, but it's still a mess. So my mom basically picked up after my dad as well. But I did remind her, and it was, it was a good memory um, before my father passed away that if we didn't have the crumbs, we wouldn't have him. You know, so it was a real, it, it was something that in light of it was, I mean, granted, for my mom, for 28 years she took care of him. It was hard, and it was hard to see that. But as, as a son, and kind of growing up in that environment, never knowing if your dad's going to die or if he's not going to die, that, that, that was okay. The crumbs were okay. So my dad... My dad still worked, even though he was sick. He worked for Xerox. He was a copy repair guy and, and blind. And he, apparently he was good. I know people that said that, you know, I don't think they kept him employed because they felt bad for him, but he was actually good at it. He couldn't see very much, and he did everything by feel. And my dad worked a lot. My dad showed me a lot and taught me a lot based on the way that he worked. His work ethic was, was incredible. He would wake up in the morning, feel sick, vomit, get in the car, go to work. 
And so as a young person, you see this and you're like, man, you know, he's, this is what he has to do. He's going to provide for his family. However, the hard part was, as a young person, my dad made a lot of promises. And I'll never forget one time my father had taken me to the, uh, the, the ATV motorcycle place in the north end of town. It used to be on Donovan across from uh, the bowling alley. And I'll never forget him walking me in through there. And uh, he said, you know, son, we're going to get you an ATV. You know, we're going to get this stuff. And I kind of just knew deep down inside. It's like my dad wanted to do it, but I knew we couldn't afford it. You know, I, I knew that we couldn't. And so it was hard. I mean, as a father, I'm looking at that, and then I'm seeing the, the, the things and kind of this pattern of the way that my father was is that he would, he would promise something and yet not follow through. He, he wouldn't do it. And then came the times when I was a teenager and my mom had to start walking and or working. She knew how to walk, I promise. Um, <laughs> anyway, so my, uh, my mom had to work. And so there was the three boys. My oldest brother was, was out of the house by that time. He's about 19 years old and I was 13. And I got into a ton of trouble. I got involved with, um, with some people, started selling drugs, and I did that up until about the age of 21. So from the time I was about 14 years old to 21, I sold drugs. And finally, when my parents found out what I was doing, and my dad in particular, of course, because he was usually the one that threw my hammer down. You know, I can convince my mom anything. She's like, you know what, you're right. But dad, no way, it didn't matter. He'd, he'd try and throw it. And, and my dad's response was, well, son, you're going to do what you're going to do anyways, even if I tell you no. And essentially what he was doing is he was condoning my behavior by not disciplining me, by not saying, hey, you know, this is unacceptable. You're living in my house. This is not going to happen. And so there were some really, there, there were some hard things as a young person growing up in that type of environment that obviously led to, to the progression of that type of lifestyle to where I'm very fortunate I didn't get arrested and go to jail for a long period of time. It ended up snowballing into something really deep until God fortunately came in and redeemed the situation and took me out of that place where, where I was going. So in, uh, in 1998, my, my brother passes away. My, my middle brother was, was killed by a drunk driver. And um, basically at that point, my dad's will to live just, just sank. I, w- I graduated from high school. My, my brother passed away. I graduated from high school. A year later, um, my dad just says, you know, I'm, I'm done. His kidney, the one kidney that he did have, he had just said, you know what? I'm, I don't want to go to the hospital. I don't want to go back on dialysis. I'm done. He was 48 years old, and for about two weeks, my dad sat there and basically suffered as every single organ in his body shut down. Um, I was 20 years old at the time, and I'll never forget sitting next to my dad as he was dying and talking to him and just telling him that I loved him and him telling me that he loved me too. So there was quite a few things that I learned from my dad. Um, A few of them obviously not so good as a father, but quite a few of them that were really good. I mean, my dad, he, he taught me a strong work ethic. As a, as a young man, he taught me, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter how you feel. That's that you need to get up and you need to provide. You need to get up there. This is if you have a family, these are the things that are necessary to take care of your family, regardless of how you feel. It's not about you. He also, unfortunately, um, by default, showed me that it's important to follow through. That when I promise my son something, that I'm going to do something. That I need to do it, and that my son knows that he can count on the things and the word that his dad gives him. And one of the last things that was amazing, and, and I saw it when, when my brother had passed away, was about forgiveness and love. See, when my brother was killed by a drunk driver, it was, it was kind of amazing because it was my oldest brother and I, and my, my parents were in the courtroom when the young man that had hit my brother, it was a, it was a, he was driving under the influence, hits my brother, my brother dies. It was a hit and run. The guy goes, he, he leaves, and... Mm, 
the, uh, the police catch him, put him in jail. We're in the courtroom. And my mom brings in a picture of, of my brother that had passed away. And we were in there. And, and I'll never forget when it was kind of our, our time to speak, our family, they gave us each a chance, you know, to say something in the courtroom. And my mom holds up a picture of my brother and says, hey, you know, this is my son. I'll never have him back. But we forgive you. We forgive you. So as, as a young person, I see this, and I see my kids, and I see my wife, and some of the people that I know and, and that I've been into contact with, and it's just ingrained in my heart of, of who I am as a person based on these actions that my parents did. And it's, it's hard for me to even say that because, I mean, I have a kid, and I couldn't, couldn't fathom what it would be like to lose a child. Um, and what my parents went through, my dad was, he was done. And that was it. And I think all of us kind of understood. We looked at it and we said, you know, I understand. And so my dad went. Which leads me to my second point. If you guys brought your Bibles with you, um, please turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 11. I'm going to read to you guys the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. I think it's, it's very applicable, obviously, to w- what I was talking about there, but also in, in contrast to, to God the Father. The things that I'm going to talk about are going to transcend gender, marriage, and the core of what I learned from my dad, both good and bad, is at times like scripture and sometimes the exact opposite. It's kind of the paradox of our life. See, God loves us and that love should inspire inside of us a confidence that God wants us to live the life that he's called us to and that we're able to live that life. It's not, it's not in anybody's imagination. It's not this expectation of, oh, hey, this is what you have to be. It's not that. It's that it's realistic, and it's something that every single one of us can achieve. And it's going to be different for each and every one of us because it's, it's dependent on that relationship that we, that we have personally with Jesus Christ. Luke 15, starting off in verse 11. I'm going to read all the way through, uh, through, through verse 32, so just kind of hang with me. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So this parable of the prodigal son, or could be called the parable of the father, obviously in, in God being the the person of the, of the father is the way that he's giving the example. There's literally millions of sermons, and I'm sure we, we've heard them, and obviously there's just this aspect of grace that goes along, and I think that so many people can relate to in their lives as they become a Christian, knowing our past, knowing what we've been through, and what God has done inside of our lives. But I want to focus on verses 25 through 32, which is actually the son that stayed behind, the son that was there, and that, that did everything. See, in verse 25 it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he is, has him safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. You see, this, the, the brother that stayed behind, unfortunately, kind of falls into this other category. You know, there's, there's those of us that... that can relate to this like, wow, you know, hey, we're redeemed. This is who we are in Christ. Then you have the other brother, which I think unfortunately sometimes in our age as Christians, as we become comfortable being Christians, we become a little self-righteous of, hey, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I've saved. Look, I've stayed behind. Why are you doing this for these people? Or we have these attitudes towards these people that, who are they? These sinners, these alcoholics or they're gay or whatever it is that their struggle might be not realizing that at one point in our lives, whatever our sin was, we were separated from Jesus. We did not have that relationship with the Father because of our own actions as well. And that this brother just sits, what about me? And the amazing thing is, and and this is where I think it just is, it has such a broad application to each and every, from the one that comes back that's in sin to the one that has stayed behind and yet is still in sin and is self-righteousness. The Father comes back and pleads with him. Or in other words, in some, some, he, he beseeches him, some, some of the terms that's used. And the, the Greek word that's used in that is, is called parakaleo. And it's where we get the word from the Holy Spirit, the Greek word, the parakalete. And it means to console, to beseech, to be of good comfort. See, even in the comfort, the older son responds with, see what I've done. So God said, he, he comes in, he says, you know, be of good comfort, I'm sure... God would rather be inside eating and celebrating, but yet he still has this other son that's stuck outside in his self-righteousness. And he goes in to comfort him and to beseech him. So even for those ones that are in church that sometimes drive us the craziest. You know, I hear most people, they say, well, I don't want to go to certain church because it's just full of hypocrites. Well, if you go, you can just add to the crowd. We'll all be hypocrites together because it's kind of where we all end up finding ourselves. God still loves them too. Just like he loves the ones that are outside of the church, that God is working on their hearts to build that, rela- that relationship and beckon them back. And if they were to only know and realize that the Heavenly Father is waiting there for them, regardless of what they've done, regardless of what their past is, as well as he loves that son and is beckoning that son that has gotten caught up in his own hangouts. The Father in verse 31 says, My son... You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's 
now he's found. See, the, bro- the, the father's happy because instead of performing a eulogy, he gets to perform a celebration. He gets to perform the celebration of the son that was dead, and now he's celebrating his life. You see, the father, as you can tell in both of his kids' life, he was, he was intimately involved. He understood that, you know what, there's going to be a time where the wings are going to go and the kid's going to fly. And you hope that everything in the foundation that you've set up as a father is going to be firm. And that when they go out, they're ultimately going to make their decisions. And they're going to do what they're going to do. You're going to raise kids and do everything you possibly can. And ultimately, the decisions they make are going to be their responsibility. You can only lay the foundation. And as we go in further, essentially, what I want to talk about is, is, is do, we, do we know and are, are we really thinking deep down inside of our hearts? Do we have that foundation? And we said, this is the foundation that I'm laying for my kids. So the father comes out and speaks love to him, both of them. The one that's far off and the one that stayed behind, he speaks love to them regardless of their position. We just finished Ephesians. Ephesians 5.1 says, We are to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. We are to imitate our father and his love towards us. See, there's certain things like lying. You know, I don't lie to my wife because I'm afraid of the consequences. I don't lie to my wife because I love her. And if I do lie to my wife, the question is, is where is my heart to come back and say, you know what, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And it's not out of, oh my gosh, I'm just worried about what everyone thinks and what she... You do it out of, out of love for that person. It's that, that love motivation that, that beckons the heart to move back to that person and say, please forgive me for what I've done. See, I, when I discipline my son when he's acting crazy and wild, which some of you guys don't get to experience, he comes and he's usually pretty decent here at home. He's real comfortable and doesn't listen a lot. Um, it's not fun. Have you ever seen this? Some of you has screaming three-year-olds when they get in trouble. You tell them it's time to go to bed. And they're like, no, I'm not going to bed. So you got to go and got to give him a swat. You got to swat the little bugger and get him back to bed. And that's where you got to stay. They're like trying to set this foundation for this kid. It's not fun, but what's the motivation behind it? You're setting a standard. And love is the motivation behind what you're doing for him, both in the discipline, but yet also in the encouragement. When he wakes up in the morning, he says, Hey, Daddy, can you help me put my pants on? You're just like, Yeah. You know, and you help him and you give him a hug and you tell him you love him. And I don't work a lot of hours, which I work too many. If any of you have jobs like I do, find a different job. It's too much. But I work to provide for my family because I love them. And when I get up in the morning, I see that example that my father set, and that's why I go to work and spend the time that I do. You see, the father seeks out his son in this parable of love. He addresses his son's heart, and, motiv- and the motivation behind it is love. I'm sure he'd rather be in the party like I was talking about earlier, but instead he's out there restoring and encouraging the son that stayed behind. He's saying, okay, well, the fattened calf's killed. I'm sure they got a ton of wine, and they're having fun and merry, and they're celebrating, but his motivation is to be back with that son that's still not a part of it. Here's the one son that comes back. Hey, let's celebrate. He goes in. They're celebrating, but yet, oh, my my other son's not here. Let me go out and reach out to that son and bring him in as well. So God's love is, is our motivation to see him as a good father and to embrace him as a father and for us to be fathers like him someday. We see him in that example, as the example. Even if our own dads were were too busy or or too sick, it doesn't give us an excuse to take away that that attention and that responsibility that we have for our own children. Hopefully we're able to learn from that and, and to make a difference. 
so I, I'm going to go into talking about being a father, and I should hopefully be kind of summing it up. I think I got like a page and a half left here, um, but I want to share. I'm going to share a story about someone that I met, and it's kind of interesting. I was actually going to counseling for about five months. I didn't think anything was wrong. I thought it was crazy. Why am I going to counseling? And I went get there, and about two weeks in, I realized I was a mess. I was like, oh, I can't believe all this stuff. And I don't know if he had just like convinced me that I had the problems, but I believed him. So <laughs> it took five months. Um, I, it, it was interesting because it was about probably about a month after I was done with the counseling, and a lot of it actually had to do with with my family, with, with my upbringing, with my mom and my dad and different things that I was struggling with. And I really didn't, I didn't notice it and I didn't see it. And it was affecting my marriage. And of course, I'm seeing, you know, I, I thought everything was fine, of course. Like, oh, like, what's, honey, what's wrong? I'm the greatest husband in the world. I thought everything was okay. She's like, yeah, our, yeah, you, counseling will be great. Please go. So I went. And about, about a month after that, there's this, this man that I had met, um, Really, really awesome experience, and it was just neat. It's like when you when you first meet him, you know him. There's just he just has such a gentle spirit about him. You could just tell that he loves and that he cares. And I'll never forget he had, he had come in. This is at work, so he'd brought in his car in, and um, we had been talking a few times past. And I'll never forget he was in the drive. He had he had pulled his car up, and he's walking away. And he said, "You know, can you? Would you mind if if you were kind of like my adopted son?" And I didn't respond to him at first, and I was kind of like. I, I paused for a second. I'm kind of like, wow. Uh, I didn't know what to say. But not having a father and then going through and dealing with all this stuff is like, if you don't have a father, your father isn't going to be there. I, I don't care where you're at in your life. There's, some, there's a void deep down in your heart. You know, my dad's gone. He doesn't get to see my wife. He doesn't get to see my kids. He doesn't get to experience any of that type of stuff. And so here's this man who was kind of a stranger you know I didn't even know where he lived I just knew because he came into work and he's always really nice and caring and, and a wonderful guy and he, he had come in it was about a, a week or it was a couple days after that he had come back and, and I came up to him I said do you remember what you what you said to me before it's like I'd really like to take you up on that offer and in getting to know him more I had found out that about 18 years ago, he had a daughter that had graduated high school, and she died in a, in a boating accident. And two months after his daughter died, he found out that his wife was pregnant and she was having another, another baby. And just this year, his daughter graduated high school. So you can just imagine the type of images and memories that are conjured up through this experience of life. But as a dad and looking at my kids, I know why he asked me that. Because of his heart, because of who he was as a person, and because of his life experiences. And he made a choice when he experienced that, that he was going to live life a certain way. And that he was going to care and love people a certain way. I actually had a customer come in while he was in there, and he just said a few words. And, and after he left, this customer doesn't even know him from anyone. He says, that he is just such a sweet man. And I said, Absolutely, absolutely. I was, I'm just fortunate enough to have a relationship with a guy, so I consider it a, a huge blessing. Which brings me to my third point, which is being a father. If you're a parent, the love that you feel for your child is a, just it's just a shadow of the love that God feels for us. When you tell your child, "I love you," it's a gift that God gives to feel that same emotion that he feels when he reaches out to us and tells us 
He loves us. My question is, are we embracing that opportunity as fathers, as parents? Are we embracing that opportunity to tell our children that we love them? And are we taking the opportunity to mold and shape and influence these little ones' lives? It's a huge responsibility. Huge. See, God's intentional in the way that we should parent in the same way should be intentional. We should have a purpose and intent behind why we're parenting. Why are we parents? What are we doing to influence these kids' lives? How are we being examples to these kids so that they can look up and follow and emulate those things? Just like we look to our Heavenly Father when we read the Scriptures, that He has emulated a certain way to live and that we see that when we, we strive for that. Now, we're, some of us, a lot of us are like that prodigal son that didn't. We took all of its wealth and we said, you know what, hey, great, thanks for giving me earth. Thanks for being born in America that I can go and have all these things and just squander it and be completely oblivious to the fact that He wants a relationship with us. But in the same way, that, that, that Father, God the Father, has set up a purpose in our lives and is very intentional in how He's allowing certain experiences to happen and just waiting for us to come back to Him. So another question, how does a young lady, if you have a daughter, how does a young lady grow up to know that she's beautiful? Then how does a young man know that he can accomplish anything that he sets his mind to? See, society tells girls that it's only in fairy tales that men will treat them like princesses. They don't, they don't believe it. The TV, if you go and watch TV, which most of us spend a lot of time doing, what is the TV telling them? And then what does society tell them as far as what being beautiful is? You know, they reduce it to an action of her body because men are so visual, they want to see this stuff. So what, is the, what does the girl do? The girl responds by promiscuity. She thinks that by giving her body away in lust, that that's going to be a sign of beauty. And what do men think? Young men, when they grow up, they think that, hey, you know, hey, I have this girlfriend and this girl and I got that girl. They reduce to, to success in their lives as far as being men to having these types of relationships, these shallow relationships with females. As parents and especially fathers, we need to be displaying what love is and being that example as a parent. It's essential to be setting that standard in front of our children of what it means to be a man and to our daughters what the expectation should be when they're looking for a man and that it's not just in fairy tales, that it is possible, that there are men out there that will love them the way they're supposed to be loved. See, I believe there's three stages in life. There's like you have this like newborn to 18, obviously until they go out and they're free. There's like this 18 to 30 stage and then there's like the 30 to death stage. It just, it's all one big category when you're 30. I'm 31, so I'm there. See, for whatever reason, when we get to the age of 30, we, it's kind of like when most people are girls and guys, you know, girls get tummy tucks and boob jobs and guys buy these like sports cars, you know, and they race around all over the place. And I just thought it would be a little bit more convenient. We should all buy a hearse, you know, and then we're dead. They just throw us in the back. Done. It's convenient. It's really, really easy. For 18 years, we're given an opportunity to shape from 18 to the rest of their life. So we have this 18, it's a very small window. Now I've, I've known people at work, they say, oh, this is a perfect time to be working a lot. You know, your kids are little, they won't remember. What? That's the type of thinking that the world thinks. That's actually, the majority of people that I've known, they think, oh, well, they're young, they won't remember it. 
they will. They may not remember it inside of their memory, but they're going to remember it in their hearts. There's going to be certain things that are ingrained within these children's hearts based on the actions and things that you're doing inside of their lives. You see, if we reduce our relationship with our kids to words and no action, we're going to be hypocrites. Just like the ones in church that we hate, we're there. We're right there. They say this and they do this. No, it's going to be the exact same way. They're going to be 18 years old and you're going to be like, no, this whole time for 18 years my parents are telling me to do this, but yet they do this. What the heck? I don't want to do that. So how does that set them up, right? From 18 to 30, they're kind of looking for their, their, their spouse or they're looking for this loved one. What's the example that was set for them? How do they know what to look for? Was the example set? Or vice versa? If we have the actions and we do all this stuff, but yet we never actually extend out our arms and love them to reinforce the words, they're going to grow up emotionally stunned and they're not going to know. Everything's going to be a question. They're going to wonder, I don't know. You know, my parents did this stuff, but they never said anything. Nothing, nothing was ever said. So unless we're doing both, it might as well be thrown out the window. We have to have the words and we have to have the actions. We have to have the follow-through. We're going to make mistakes. No one's perfect. None of us are. There's going to be things. I've already apologized to my son. I can't remember one time I, and I'm like, why did you do that? You shouldn't be doing that. And my wife's like, honey, I said it was okay if he did that. And I'm like, oh, this poor kid, you know, just, she says it's okay. I'm over here like spanking him for it. And I already spanked him. The poor kid's crying. I'm spanking him. So I have to apologize to my son. If I want my son to learn, you need to forgive other people. You need to, and when you hurt someone, you need to ask for forgiveness and apologize. How is he going to learn that? Because I, because I told you so. You know, it's like the old, because I told you, why? Because I said so. That's why. It's like the best phrase for a parent. It's good sometimes. <laughs> he thinks it's funny too. <laughs> but we have to, we have to have both. We have to be able to reinforce that. We have to, at times, go up to our kids and apologize and say, you know, I'm really sorry, son, for doing that. Will you forgive me? Since we just finished Ephesians, it's, a, it's kind of a good place, and this is, I'm going to be kind of summing up the end here. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. You know, my wife on the wedding ring, that's some of the scriptures that I have on here, and it's a... It's a good one to be quoted in a lot of churches. They always use the first part of it. You know, it's wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You know, they always leave out the rest. They always are just like, wives submit to your husbands. You know, it says it in the Bible, women submit to your husbands. They forget to read the rest of it. You know, like a lot of times they leave it kind of out of context. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now that's pretty sweet. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. So women submit to your husbands as to Jesus. It's kind of empowering. However, if you keep reading, it will kind of give you a glimpse of putting this in perspective of who, who they're submitting to and, and why. Husbands, this is the verse that's in my wedding ring. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one had ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So there's the responsibility to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave his life up for the church. See, I'm reading these verses because I think as, as backwards as our society kind of teaches it, and I think as a byproduct of, of us just naturally, that to be a great father, you first have to be a great husband. You can't be a great father without being a great husband. However, there's going to be certain instances, obviously, where this isn't the case. You know, not everyone stays married. People get divorces. There's things that happen. God can redeem all those things. All those things that can be redeemed. We can take actions as whatever happens in our separation that, hey, you know what? God still called me to be this person. And this is the man that I'm supposed to be to my kids regardless of what their mother who might hate me tell them or vice versa if it's the other way around. That that opportunity is still there to redeem that situation regardless of our circumstances. But for those of us with a wife, your sons and and daughters are watching you. They're watching what you're doing. You see, as fathers, they're watching how you're treating their moms. And they're going to create an expectation of how to treat women based on how you treat your wife. And your daughters are going to create an expectation of how they should be treated based on how you're treating your wife and their mom. So they're going to hear these words. They're going to see these actions. And the question is, what type of man do you want for your daughter? You be that man. And your sons, what type of man do you want him to be? And how do you want him to treat his wife? You be that man. That's who he's going to learn it from. If not, he's going to be on his own. My, my dad wasn't necessarily the best husband in the world. He, he loved us kids. I know that he loved us. I have no, no question of that in the best way that he could. But he wasn't the best example as, as what a husband should be to a wife. You see, it's in doing this and reinforcing these things, the kids are going to look up and say, oh, wow, that's how it's done for 18 years. So when they spend the rest of their lives and they're going out and they're looking for someone, they have an idea in their mind of what it's supposed to be like. It's not going to be the same. Every night when my wife and I pray for my son, we put him down for bed, and we pray for his wife and we pray for her husband. I don't know who it's going to be, but I hope that I'm setting a good enough example that they have certain expectations. I don't know exactly what those expectations eventually will be, but I hope they're good and they're really high. And I can only do that by setting the standard, by telling my wife she's beautiful. Them hearing that, hey, honey, you know what? You're beautiful. You're a princess. Do I open the door for her? Do I do these little things for her? Do I try and communicate to her effectively? You know, sit down. The other night we were up on Friday night and she asked, hey, how's our marriage going? I'm like, great. <laughs> it's wonderful. She's like, where are you living? What house are you living in? So I got all frustrated and offended. Like, well, I'm doing all this stuff and all this effort for, of course, it's like two days before I get ready to teach. And um, there it is. So finally, after her, she was powering through. And, um, and I gave and said, you know what? And we had a talk for about 45 minutes, and it was good. I wanted to give up. I'm just frustrated with you, and I wanted to give up. My wife pressed on. 
So I'm just, I, I'm fortunate that my wife is who she is and that we love Jesus and pray that God will continue to encourage us and strengthen us in the direction we're supposed to be going. So as I close here, if we're to truly love, we must dedicate a part of our lives to viewing our wives and loving our wives as if today was our last day on earth. You know, if we look at our spouses and we look at those around us in light of them possibly going, the question is, how are we going to treat them? It's not going to happen every day. There's going to be times we forget and get caught up, but how are we going to treat them? How much would we love them if we knew that they were going to pass away tomorrow? What would we say to them and what would we do for them? In light of death, we'll face and hopefully unite our hope not only in God's promised resurrection, but also the deep and abiding love in the spouse that we've chosen. One day, we should be those who lay on our deathbeds knowing we left a legacy of hope and looking forward to our full reunion with the Creator. Fortunately, for all of us who believe in Jesus, being cleansed by the blood, by the blood of Jesus Christ. So words and actions, our great God showing us that He's a great Father. May you men, fathers, be that man. So as, as I close here, um, every Sunday we have a chance to come up and, and share in communion. It's an opportunity for each of us to come up and, and remember and celebrate what Jesus Christ did for us, that he died for us and shed his blood for us. The band's going to come up, and we're going to sing songs and words of love and encouragement and celebration, a time of worship. Thanks, buddy. Prayer. There's going to be people in the back while we're, while we're singing. We have time of worship. There's going to be people in the back. If you want prayer, if you have questions that, hey, I'm not being a good father, I want to be a better father, or just someone to pray with, someone to encourage you, there's going to be people that have little lanyards. They'll be back there. You can go and pray with them. And giving. There's, there's offering boxes on each of the sides and, and in the back as you leave. And God gave so much to us. So if you guys have an opportunity, you feel led in the heart, obviously, to give and, and to help this fellowship and this ministry, feel, feel free to uh, put some dough in the boxes. Um, and fellowship, of course. You know, fellowship isn't just what we do when we come here on Sundays. Fellowship is it's something that we do every day. You know, it's our neighbors. It's while we're at work. It's the places that we go. We have that time of fellowship. So... I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer, and we'll have a time of uh, uh, worship and, and celebration. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just um, I thank you so much for giving us this opportunity, um, for being the God, being that Father and that example that we have. So as we just lift you up, Lord, and we glorify you, and we, we thank you for this Father's Day, for giving us this day to celebrate you and what you've done for us. Lord, may we as fathers not forget our responsibility, the huge one that we're given to lead our families and to be husbands that you've called us to and to love our children. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.